Look at 1 John chapter 5, page 1228. We've been looking through this letter over the past few months, and we've come to the very last verse. Verse 21, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourself from idols. Idolatry doesn't appear to be the major problem for most people here, I think. You probably have this image. I've been in one home in Dundee where there's the elephant god and been asked to bow down and offer a banana to the elephant god. It was an interesting conversation that followed from that. Uh, Most of you probably don't have idols at home, and when you think of the word idol, you think of American idol or something like that. But this keep yourself from idols right at the end of this letter is directly applicable to every single one of us, whether we are Christian or non-Christian, as I hope that you will see. Last week, we looked at the verses before, which talked about our security, and we saw that what we know determines how we feel. So, uh, we know that anyone born of God uh, does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe. We know that the Son of God has come, and so on. But here, he finishes off by saying to the Christians uh, that they are to do this one thing, to guard themselves or keep themselves from idols. And it's really about guarding their hearts. If last week we're talking about what we, what we think. This week, we're thinking about what we feel. And maybe, maybe I should begin just by asking you, what motivates you just now? What, what, what inspires you? What angers you? What moves you? What causes you to weep? What makes you laugh? Because John recognizes that that is a big, big problem for us. We are to keep ourselves. He addresses them as little children. It's a diminutive term. It's, it's a, a term of affection. And Jude 21 puts it the two ways. Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And then in Jude 24, to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. So we are to keep ourselves, and God is also to keep us. Now, what we are being asked to do, and those of us who are Christians are being asked to keep ourselves from idols, those of us who are not Christians, we're being asked to give up our idols. And again, I think that for, for many of you, the notion of having an idol, you just think, this is, well, this is not relevant to me. This belongs to a different culture. It belongs to a different place. If uh, Maybe if I was in India and there were, uh, I was a Hindu and there were lots of uh, idols around. But it doesn't really, really apply to me. Well, we'll see that it does, because we define idols in this way, from uh, Tim Keller's excellent book, Counterfeit Gods. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Now, that's a very important insight. It's if you are looking for someone to give you what only God can give, if you are looking for something to give you what only God can give, then that has become an idol to you. 
And there are three aspects of this idolatry that I want us to deal with. And, and I, you, I, you seriously do not have an understanding of yourself if you think, no, there's nothing like that, because there is. Uh, for me, there are things that easily come between me and God, and there are things and there are people who I would look to to provide something that ultimately only God can give. And by that definition, I think it's a very good definition, by Keller's definition, it, then we are in grave danger of idolatry in three levels. Number one is idolatrous worship. There is a danger that we can be involved in worship, and by that we're talking about what we give to God in terms of prayer, in terms of gathering together, in, in terms of adoration. There is a danger that we get caught up in religious idolatry. Acts 15, verse 29, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Now, there was a reason for that, because in the culture at that time, there were lots and lots of idols around, lots of temples, uh, lots of different religions. Food was usually, uh, was often sacrificed to these idols, and Paul at one point in Corinthians says, discussing this in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, food offers to idols is nothing. It doesn't really matter. But in Acts 15, 29, because of the danger of Christians being caught up in idolatrous worship, they were told at that point they had to abstain from it. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verses 16 to 18, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Interesting how this next verse is always misquoted out of context. It's not written about relationships. It's written about worship. Therefore, come out from them, be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So the early Christians were being told, don't do it. Don't go to temple worship. Don't participate in what everyone else in your culture is participating in because you don't need it. You don't need the temple. You don't need all these other things because you have God. You have Jesus. And to put something in the place of God or something in the place of Jesus is blasphemous. And it's very, very dangerous. Now, this goes completely against the teaching in our culture at this moment in time, which says, worship in any way you want, worship whoever you want, as long as you do it sincerely, as long as you do it rightly, and as long as a Christian, you're just saying, well, this is to Jesus. I don't think we realize how easily we can be deceived in this respect. We are to keep ourselves from it. The word used is the word guard which has this idea of a shepherd guarding the flock or a, a soldier guarding uh, prisoners or uh, a banker guarding, guarding a deposit or a trust. And he's saying, don't participate in it. The pagans will demand that you offer sacrifices to idols. You don't do it. And this was taken so seriously by the early Christians, that's why they were killed. They were killed and they were martyred because under in tremendous pressure, they refuse to go along with this idolatrous worship. In chapter 2 and verse 22, John has already said this, who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son is the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father 
also. And in chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in this world. And John is writing to these Christians and he's saying, you're going to be tested. You're going to have to hold fast in this. Christ Jesus, chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Most of us don't want to be martyrs. We don't want to be disliked. We don't want to be hated. Um, There are people who like annoying people. There are people who like to boast. Oh, look, I've upset these people and so on. But most of us are sane enough and sensitive enough that We don't actually like upsetting people. Um, We don't want to be martyrs. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be in trouble. We don't want people to dislike us, and we certainly don't want to be killed. But John is saying to the Christians, remember that God is love, and remember that sometimes you have to pay a price. Don't get involved in idolatrous worship. Now, we may say, okay, that doesn't apply to us because no one's going to kill us. We're not going to be asked to bow down to an idol. Well, I think it does apply to us because I think that there is enormous pressure on us to to compromise in terms of who we worship. It's intriguing how the church gets its its, um, priorities wrong. I was in St. Giles Cathedral a few weeks ago, and I think I had my Australian cowboy hat on, if I remember rightly. And um, I went in and I sat down just to read and to pray, because I had a wee bit of spare time before I was going on to a meeting. And I was sitting there, and I was actually praying, and there was a tap on my shoulder, and there was a man came and said, excuse me, you can't wear that in here. I said, What? You know, the hat, I hadn't even noticed, actually. I still had it on. I said, oh, I'm dreadfully sorry, and took the hat off and so on. And then I sat there and just got mad. And if you've heard the, the story of Jenny Geddes, how she threw the stool, I wanted to throw something at the organ. or a, I wanted to go into the gift shop and say, what's this here? That's idolatry. Look at this rubbish theology that you've got here. Look at all this stuff. I was thinking, you're upset about somebody wearing a hat, even as tasteful a one as an Australian cowboy hat. You're, you're upset about that. And you allow idolatry in your church in different ways. And I, I, I could have pointed out different things that were idolatrous because they were taking away from focusing on Jesus Christ. You see, it's easy for people in churches to become idolatrous. Right now, at this moment in time, um, I believe that uh, there's a German gentleman who's making somebody into a saint down in Birmingham. I actually have a lot positive to say about the Pope. I think it is incredibly ironic that one of the few people who will stand up for biblical standards in British culture today is not the Protestant churches, uh, the main ones. It turns out that it's the Pope who's made some fun, he said some fantastic things and some great things. But if I was asked to be right now participating in worship or to go to Bella Houston Park and participate, I wouldn't do it, and I'll tell you why because I think it's idolatrous worship. And, I'll t- and, and the reason for that is this. 
when you go and when there's the mass and the, the host is lifted and people are to worship the host and so on, where there's all the bells and smells and everything else, and this is not a matter of taste, for me the concern becomes when you see people bowing down and worshiping things that are not Jesus Christ. And people say, well, it's, it's incredibly holy. It gives you that sense of awe and that sense of reverence. And, and for me, I have to say, no, no, actually, I actually think it detracts from Jesus. Now, personally, I, I, I think the present Pope is, a, to me, I've read his book on Jesus. I think he's a Christian. I think that he's got a lot to teach us. But the whole paraphernalia and everything that goes around it, I, I don't want to offend or mean to offend people. But I wouldn't take part in a mass because I think the mass is blasphemous and idolatrous. I think the notion that a piece of bread is turned into Jesus Christ, that you worship that piece of bread, uh, as perception sometimes is, or even saints. Cardinal Newman is going to be beatified, which apparently, according to the news today, I'm sure they must have got it wrong, means he gets into heaven. Well, where's, where's he been? You know, purgatory probably. But what about the rest of us? Is it only saints who get into heaven and so on? Uh, in that sense, the whole idea of sainthood, the whole idea of all these different things, I, I have to go against it because it's not in the Scriptures, and I think it takes away from the centrality of Jesus Christ. But Protestants, evangelicals, charismatics, we can have our idols as well in different ways. Sometimes the form of worship can be almost idolatrous. Sometimes the way that we regard a building can be idolatrous. Sometimes the way that some people regard preachers or the church leaders can be almost idolatrous. You will do what the church leader says because, what, he's in the place of God? No, that would be wrong. It would be entirely wrong. Sometimes we place our traditions in the place of God. There is, uh, idolatry is deeply, deeply rooted within us. John Calvin says this, the worship of God cannot continue uncorrupted and pure whenever men begin to be in love with idols or images. For so innate in us is superstition that the least occasion will infect us with its contagion. Superstition. It really does get to you. I, I remember one man who told me he would never ever, ever, in case God got him, hang out his washing on a Sunday. Now, he swore like a trooper. He never went to church, and he, he blasphemed Jesus' name, but the one thing he wouldn't do was hang out his washing on a Sunday. That was his superstition. And they're all different kinds of superstitions that people will have. We have to guard ourselves against idolatrous worship. The focus in our worship, the heart of our worship, the center of our worship, the purpose of our worship has to be Jesus Christ, and everything must point towards Him. Second thing we have to watch is idolatrous thinking. Mental idolatry, that's the false conceptions of God. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The word that's used here in classical Greek means phantom, ghost, the idea of falseness, of fancy, of unreality. 1 Corinthians 10, 19, do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, it's not. It's not there. It doesn't exist. 
In our age, what are these phantom gods that we create in our own minds? They do not exist. Well, lots and lots of people, of course, will say that any belief in God is just a fantasy. But we're saying, no, no, there is a reality, and that reality is Jesus Christ. And if we add to or take away from Jesus Christ, then we are creating a God in our own image. The God of liberal theology is a God who does not have power, is a God who ultimately does not exist. And by the way, that's why so many of our church leaders in Britain today can speak for God, cannot defend us against the, the, the hatred of the extreme secularists purely and simply because they don't actually believe in God. They believe in the concept of God, some God, some, but it's a mental image. It's not the God of the Bible. And I have to say, even amongst those of us who are evangelical Christians and say we believe the Bible, we can have a mental image of God which is kind of like God is my buddy and there's no holiness in in this God at all. And we create a mental image. We create our own personal Jesus. And John says, keep yourself from that. Guard yourself against that kind of idolatry. Well, how do we do that? How do we keep ourselves from unreality, from phantoms, from ghosts? He's already told us, Watch out for those who deny the reality of the human life of Jesus, of Christ in the flesh. Watch out for those who deny that Jesus is risen from the dead. Watch out for people who just kind of say, let everyone have their own opinion. I had a Christian write to me this week, and what he said was this, that's what you feel, you're entitled to your feeling, but this is what I feel. Now, for a Christian to write that is rubbish. It doesn't, who cares what I feel If I'm standing up here telling you, uh, by the way, this is what I feel, well, what you do is you go, ah, David's got weird feelings, or um, so on, but you don't go by my feelings. Why should you be interested in my feelings? How is that teaching God's Word? You you obviously, well, I hope you love me. See, I can be charismatic too. You love me, and you all want to embrace me, and all that kind of stuff, but you You can't take teaching from people on the basis of what they they feel. It is a whole lot more than a feeling. We have to keep ourselves from false teaching. We have to let our thinking be shaped by Christ. We have to let our thinking be Christ. Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the passion of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's why when I, I, I read the Pope's book on Jesus, I, I was absolutely thrilled by it, not because he was the Pope, but because he was teaching what the Bible says about Jesus. Our thinking is to be Christ-like. We guard ourselves against false images of God by thinking the thoughts of Jesus, and we have those given to us in the Scriptures. So when I feel and I have a fear that God hates me, I read in 1 John that God is love. When I might fear that uh, God doesn't know about my situation, I read about God knowing all things. It is back to this what we know, what we understand, what is true, and what is real. So, we have to guard ourselves in idolatry in terms of 
not participating in idolatrous worship and making sure that our worship is Christ-centered and God-centered and not man-centered, not the kind of thing whereby people say, well, I go to this church because I like this and I'm not going here because I don't like that. It's not about what we like. Is is Christ at the center? But we also guard ourselves against idolatry by in our heads, by how we think, making sure that we think of God as He reveals Himself to us, not as we imagine, not as we imagine Him. He is not a God of our own imagination. But the third way, and I think the primary way actually that John is addressing this, is the question of idolatrous love, where we put something as a substitute for God. Going back to Keller's definition, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Money can be an idol. Love and relationships can be an idol. You can idolize your children. You can idolize your husband. You can idolize your wife. Status can be an idol. What you are concerned about is the status that you have in society. You look for status to give you satisfaction. You look for status to give you meaning. Your job, the same way, that can be an idol. Ideologies can be an idol. It could be a political ideology or a religious ideology, a philosophical ideology. All of these things can be idols. Your studies can be an idol. You look for your studies to give you satisfaction, to give you meaning, to give you joy. People can idolize their own body. Paul uh, says to Timothy about those whose God is their belly, their appetites are their idols. And I think it's too easy for us to say, no, no, I love God, I love God, I love God. But in reality, the love that we feel, which is exemplified by what we do, what we long for, is for things other than God. David Jackman puts it this way, anything that squeezes God out of the central position towards the margin of my life must be ruthlessly toppled. Any notion of God which contradicts His perfect self-revelation in Jesus Christ must be rejected. This letter, indeed, the whole Bible was written to enable us to distinguish truth from error. We have a responsibility to attend to sound teaching, to guard our Christian lives, to have done with false goals, whether spiritual, intellectual, or material. There are some of you for whom getting married is your goal, it's your aim. There are others for whom becoming a millionaire or earning a certain amount, that's your goal. It's quite funny on things like MasterChef or um, any of these reality programs or the talent shows, Britain's Got Talent, whatever, you interview the people, what would it mean to you if you win this? And I'm always amazed at how a Christian will ask, oh, it would mean the world to me. How sad. To win MasterChef is the purpose and meaning of your life. It would mean the world. To get a record contract because you've won Britain's Got Talent, that's it. It would mean the world. But I think there are those of us who are Christians who, if we were being brutally honest, and if God could project onto that screen our thoughts, serving Jesus, following God, worshiping Him, would come way down the list of our ambitions. We say that we do it, 
but it's not the big ambition that we have. And so, other things which in and of themselves are usually good take the place of God and they become idols. Those of you who are, who are, who are not yet Christians, in effect, becoming a Christian means you give up everything to follow Jesus. We read that passage in Mark's gospel about um, the rich young ruler who did all the religious things, did all the things that were right. Jesus loved him, and because Jesus loved him, he asked him to give up the one thing that was the hardest thing for him to do. But to become a Christian, in one sense, it's easy. It's to believe and to trust in Jesus. But you don't become a Christian by saying, I believe and trust in Jesus because He's going to give me what I really want. I really want health, so Jesus will give me that. I really want a happy family, so Jesus will give me that. I really want wealth, so Jesus will give me that. That's not believing and trusting in Jesus. That's using Him, and it doesn't work. But you become a Christian when you realize that everything else just doesn't it will never satisfy, it will never fulfill, it will never give you what Christ can give. And if you're not a Christian, that's what you're being asked to do. That even uh, as we finish and as we pray, as Colin comes and leads us in prayer in a moment, that you just bow your head and, and you say, Lord, help me. And I give my life to you to follow you, whatever. But for those of us who are Christians, we go back to idolatry far too quickly. Every single New Testament letter is full of that. And I think if, if you're a Christian here today and you are really struggling with a whole lot of things, let me suggest to you that one of the reasons may be that idolatry has a deep root in your heart and it needs to be rooted out. And I want to finish with uh, reading this poem by William Cowper. It's a, a, a hymn as well, but let me just read it to you. I think it uh, describes it beautifully, what we've been talking about. Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Return, O holy dove, return. Sweet the messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. I challenge you to pray that last verse.